<laughs> we're, 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 we're over the hill, but we're, we're, we're on the way. Into the landing we're pad. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Galaxy Brains. The weekly podcast from Galaxy Research. I'm back with the track that attacks the weak nerves, and I'm down for the sound money bound to these verse, and I'm king with the ring pulling strings of these purrs. Deserve more than the Biebers. Know that it never bothers me that hide meanings deep into these verse. So you should call it cryptography rap. Put my haters in the tar, kick up dust with my heels, cause you know I take care with the lines that I feel. Don't push me, all of y'all are rookies. Buddhist when I do this on chain, Lucas Nootsie. Whoopsie, daisy, floating like Swayze. Ghosting every baby who wants to try to fade me. Phase me, tase me, send it over lightning. Rating every enemy, Bitcoin Viking. As always, I'm your host, Alex Thorne, head of firmwide research at Galaxy Digital. Thank you for listening to Galaxy Brains. We have a great show for you today. As I said, Lucas Nutzi, head of research and development at Coinmetrics. He's our guest. He's a repeat guest. Um, and it's a great conversation with Lucas about the topic of this week, which is crypto data and analytics. Um, we're going to get into it with Lucas about new products Coinmetrics is offering, talk about the ecosystem and usage of on-chain data. Um, and it's a fascinating discussion. But we'll also talk with our good friend Bimet Abibi from Galaxy Trading, as always, to discuss markets and macro. Before we get to that, I need to remind you to please refer to the link to the disclaimer in the podcast notes and note that none of the information in this podcast constitutes investment advice or an offer, recommendation, or solicitation by Galaxy Digital or any of its affiliates to buy or sell any securities. Yo, we got Phineas mic'd up. Uh, welcome to the show, Phineas, our producer, longtime producer. We got you on camera, man. Welcome. I'm honored, Alex. Thank you for having me. I, uh, I love it. Giving me a microphone almost, <laughs> you know, as we approach episode 100 in, a, in a, a month or so. Yeah. I appreciate it. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, it's been a long road and um, Phineas is essential to this show. And I f- figured it, it's fun. I love having we get some behind the scenes look and we'll chit chat with Phineas sometimes. Um, but for now, let's get right into the show. Let's go now to our friend Bimnet Abibi from Galaxy Trading. As always, Bimnet, thanks for joining Galaxy Brains. Thanks for having me. So uh, we're still just ranging in Bitcoin. Uh, I'm seeing dollar strength, bond weakness, equities struggling. To to st- is what's the vibes in markets right now? Um, what's driving the the story? In you markets? know, I think that there's a lot of fear around the implications of higher for longer, right? There, folks in the equity world are like tech stocks. You know they if you think about them as as dividend paying companies or ca- stream of cash flows over time you know just functionally as interest rates go up you know you've got to discount you know the value of those future cash flows more more aggressively um and two like what does it mean in the context of like relative value between bonds and 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 and, and equities and like from a risk adjusted perspective would you rather earn you know four and a half percent on the 10 year for 10 years with no volatility, a right. big guaranteed four and a half percent, or you know, own um, some of the the single name you know equities that that you can, and then the question is, higher for longer, what are its implications for for the broader economy? Does the consumer slow down? Does the economy slow down? Um, and if you think about what the Fed is actively trying to do, they are trying to slow the economy down with monetary policy. So if this monetary policy does have its you know, desired effect. Like it should be bad for stocks, um, and we do know that you know there are certain things that are ramping up that should hurt the consumer. Like we're now basically in October, the student loan repayments um, are about to begin. Right. In addition to that, gas prices are actually a tax on the consumer at this point. 
right? And so if every time you're at the pump, you're paying an extra $20, you're going every like week or every couple of weeks, that's going to start chipping away. And so we know that over time, we'll start to see the consumer balance sheet uh, kind of dwindle. Um, however, the, the, the counter to all of this is that, you know, the Fed still only cares about, um, you know, the, the level of inflation. And so when gas prices go up and like other things related, like that drives, you know, inflation higher and that might drive the Fed to, to more, more hawkish policy, which isn't necessarily, you know, what they do. Um, but long story short, there, there, there's just so many variables at play. Like, you know, the United Auto Workers are at strike. Right. Right. And so labor's got a lot of power right now and wages might be going up because we're in a structurally tight labor market. Which so, can contribute so, positively to inflation, right? Yeah. So we're in this weird dynamic of, you know, we know things are slowing. Nobody wants to buy a house right now. Mortgages are, rates are, are like super absurd. That That, I think, is on the cusp of... You know, some something change. to give, yeah. Um, however, the data is still like super strong, yeah. Right, uh, but you know, consumers is is going to slow over time. Their savings are, are, are dwindling. Credit card delinquencies are picking up. Auto delinquencies are picking up, etc. And so, we've got to find the balance between knowing that that stuff is happening, and you know, the the fact that the the inflation metrics that the Fed's focused on haven't necessarily bottomed or aren't anywhere close to like where they need to be for the Fed to to kind of ease. Right. Um, so it's really tough. And then you throw in just the fiscal side of things, and it's just it's just so insane. Yeah, and, just and, the mountain of Treasury supply yeah. every single day. Uh, not every day; it's their settlement days. But you know, you get Treasury supply every Tuesday and Thursday on bills. Every you know, mid-month refunding and in, in Treasuries and month-end refunding. Then you've got the tips. There's so many. I was literally looking through a, a you know a net maturity slash you know cash edition table um, the other day. But it's literally like every settlement day. It's like oh, here's another 15 billion in marginal, 10 billion there, four billion. Like it just adds up over time. And the Fed isn't actively expanding its balance sheet right now. Yeah, it's uh, it's 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 um, it is very complicated. I mean, your point that you know the economy easing, um, you know, should be supportive for inflation and thus supportive for rates to haul or eventually come down. Yeah. But at the same time, other forces in the economy keeping inflation steady. Yeah. Right. Like the tightening in the labor market, the housing market. The new uh, the consumer um, the the spending that's the, the United Auto Workers is an example of like labor power in the on the labor side negotiating power right there's that what's that metric of um, the average amount of money that like people would need to take a new job now right like they're everyone's demanding more higher wages. yeah the average like shift uh, like job shifters yeah they actually pick up I think around five to six percent increase right. in wages which is high on the historical yeah um, super high so it's tricky and 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 then you know when we think about the if the government shutdown to you're talking about the fiscal yeah. side right we also in addition to lots of spending there we also have um impasses which make you know effective governance more difficult um it's it, so crazy and then you throw in like i think a banking system that just like is not healthy it's stretched it, still. It's stretched because what's happening is, you know, when we had the Silicon Valley signature banking crisis, we had it because all of these banks 
had all of these uh, treasury securities and other long duration they just you know, went assets. Down in value. They They've gone further down in value. And they couldn't now. hold them to maturity to get that liquidity back. Be, because be, well, they were going to get uh, rushed lot, uh, by right. a run on them. So they put it on in this BTFP facility. But at this point, like everybody is now realizing that that BTFP facility is permanent. The value of those securities is only... Uh, it just got, has to got, hold them through maturity, basically. There's well, no other well, yeah, option. Well, so <laughs> That's how long is that? I mean, or, or, or interest years. rates need to come down. Right. And those assets need to Increase recover in value. value yeah, right. But that's not happening. Right. And so not the, in Fed, for longer, the yeah. Fed basically just created a new long-term lending facility that's like a permanent feature of the banking system. Right, because of just how twisted they got things, you know, by forcing banks to own all these treasuries, then hosing them, yeah, uh, uh, because they created an inflation problem by not reacting uh, aggressively enough. enough. Yeah. And so you're just in this weird situation, and now there's a huge, intense competition for for deposits, right? Um, and that's you know crushing the, the, these bank margins, and they're going to have to post more capital um, to operate. What does that mean? They're going to have to issue more debt. It's, to find it's, it, it's, it's a vicious cycle. It's it's so bad, and it, yeah. it the the issue. I hate to like blame regulators and the Fed, because it's tough to put yourself in their shoes. Sure, and to understand all the various dynamics happening. But f- for the BTFP, like you could have known day one. The that, second you start hiking, you mean? That, well, not well. The second you start hiking, um, yeah. I mean, they, they could have known about that the banking crisis sooner rather than later. But not even that. But it's just the the, the way that this facility was, you know, constructed. Like, you know, I, it wasn't the most honest at the beginning. Like nobody told you that it was going to be a permanent feature of the banking system when they initially launched right, they it. Oh, it was it's a, a one year emergency, term. one year emergency, thing. one year. We'll be fine. Right? But no. Yeah. Tricky. And so, and 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 the other thing is just uh, like. Like, let's just be honest. Like, the government can't afford four and a half, five, six percent, right? Like, interest rates with, with these levels of deficit. Oh yeah, yeah. There's all that stuff about the cost of uh, facility uh, of servicing the, fund, the national the, debt, the debt, and it just yeah. it just keeps ballooning. And and like, it's all like this market is is fundamentally built on the premise that the money printer will just go burr when necessary. Yeah. And it's just such an absurd concept. And it's like the only reason you can do it is because everywhere else is even shittier. <laughs> yeah, right. It's that's, the, that's realistically, that's what the whole essence of like the U.S. financial system and the dollar, right, yeah. and the dollar monopoly right. like right now come down to is. It's the lesser of all the evils. It's the lesser of all the evils because yeah. everywhere else is housing affordability They have the same worse. problem. Yeah. Oh, same problem. And worse. And worse because yeah. they don't have the currency benefit. Right, right, right. Um, it's tricky, and I always love talking with this. Let me shift gears just a little bit because Bitcoin. Our, Sorry, our, I didn't our, say that. Our, I didn't our guest this impulse. week, <laughs> our guest this week is Lucas Nutzi from Coin Metrics. We're okay. talking a lot about crypto data. As a trader of crypto markets, like, yeah. wh- how do you think about data? What what types of data in crypto are very important to you? Just types of data, funding data, you know, open interest, you know, volumes, all the same metrics, all market that, data stuff that, yeah. that are relevant to um, any marketplace. I think all markets are essentially. Um, identical, right? There, there's buyers and sellers. There's types of buyers and sellers. You have to figure out, you know, yeah. who's motivated to do what, right? Right. There's options positioning, yeah. right? Are people short gamma, long gamma, vault, short vol, long vol, 
right? Then there's the funding side. Like, are pe- people paying a lot to be long, or people paying a lot to be to be short? Right. And then they're they're catalysts. But you know, basically, all, all markets in my head at least function on the same set right. of things. So I look at the basically an identical you know kind of set of uh, metrics. What about across. what about like on chain data? On-chain, it's like, you know, it's, you have yeah. fundamental data, obviously, yeah. in, like at the macro level. You, yeah. you talk about a lot of that all the time. You obviously can look at individual companies. They have reporting schedules, but yeah, you know, no, does, I mean, is on it chain, impactful to you that it's more real time, transparent? It's it's so so much more impactful. I mean, you can literally see movements on chain from wallets that you track, from great traders or from market makers or from venture people that you know are dumping, and so right. you can see their tokens going to exchange and being sold. Right, and so it's an un. Like so parallel flows, level of, of transparency. Tracing flows for you as a it's, non-chain thing, yeah. Yeah, it, it's. I mean, it's great. I, I, again, like the question is like, you know, if in the biggest asset in the space, Bitcoin. Um, you know, it's it's not really that relevant to you know track. Well, I mean, the government wallets are really important, etc. Miners but, maybe, but, uh, we, miners, but we know but that. In, yeah, but in, in in things that are super macro. Yeah. Not necessarily important. Like if I told you I could track people's trading of euro dollar. Right, such a huge, massive macro asset. Which accounts doing what? It, yeah. I don't even know if there's a signal there. Right, like, just because it's such it's a big macro so asset, big. It, and like so, once, it's trading. Bitcoin's trading more as a macro asset. More of than, a macro asset. But for a more crypto native flows, like, uh, the on chain stuff is useful. Yeah, I would say yeah. yes. You Very know, for uh, a three hundred million dollar, you know, like fully... ETH DeFi token. Right, that's held. The top ten holders own like thirty percent right. of the flow. Following that flow is really you know, important. That, that's you know more important. Yeah. Um, you know, in those instances. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think you know, crypto analytics and on-chain analytics. You know, there's a ton of s- service providers out there that do a great job. Yeah. Um, and you know, folks have tried to build signals off of it and stuff. And, yeah. and I think, like with anything else. It's really, it's really tough, and only a handful of people really like figure out the well. secret sauce. Yeah, yeah. Um, Interesting. Yeah. Uh, Bimnet Abibi from Galaxy Trading, my friend. As always, thanks for coming on Galaxy Brands. Pleasure. Let's go to my friend Lucas Nutzi from Coinmetrics. Welcome back to Galaxy Brands, Lucas. Great to have you here. Likewise, Alex. So the last time Lucas uh, was here was uh, well, he wasn't actually here. We were remote, but he was on Galaxy Brains in November or December of last year. Um, talking about FTX because Lucas had done um, a lot of research to show money movement in and out of Alameda and FTX accounts that was, you know, troubling. Yeah. And we talked a lot about that. Uh, what what's have you followed? Kept following FTX? Do you is is that saga from a research standpoint over finally for you? At least on the on chain side, it seems to be over. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that was a crazy three month period uh, in in our lives at, at CM just because. Of the breadth of, of data and deception, yeah, uh, that's uh, uh, and the scale of flows that you were uncovering was yeah. just huge, just absolutely insane. Uh, <laughs> billions and billions of dollars going into DeFi, into other exchanges. Uh, I guess like one of the things that I found that I haven't really shared just yet are the other recipients of the FTT ICO. Uh, I did some work there because that that's the the whole reason why I found that four billion transaction from uh, Alameda back to FTX that looked like a bailout was looking at the ICO recipients uh, and there were some other entities there that um, basically uh, send funds to FTX uh, likely because of you know 
other deals uh, that they did as they were seeing the situation with FTT Interesting. get progressively worse. So I'm excited about the, the, the court hearings. Yeah, and, um, uh, the, uh, they, the trial. they start October 3rd, Sam's trial starts, and I'm told, although I haven't actually independently confirmed this, but people are saying Michael Lewis's FTX book apparently drops also October 3rd. Oh, so um, yeah. we're going to have to read that very quickly, I think. I mean, I'm going to have to burn through that thing. Um, so Lucas is head of R&D at, Co at CoinMetrics. Yep. Um, so what what are you researching and developing these days? What's interesting to you? What are the opportunities and challenges in crypto data? Yeah, the data in crypto is pretty tricky because it's almost like tracking within a single company an entire financial system, right? So we have both we, you know, mostly we want to categorize things into two buckets. Uh, you have, you know, market data, which are, you know, prices, volume, things that are happening on centralized exchanges. And then you have the network data, which is where I focus the majority of my time. So looking at these actual ledgers and understanding uh, how they're getting used, um, how these networks are getting used, supporting new assets, which is always a pretty tricky uh, part of our process. But uh, recently, I've been taking a, a lot of um, um, doing a lot of work around mining. Mm -hmm. uh, there's been some interesting developments in mining as an industry post FTX collapse. Yep. Uh, and I think there are some interesting changes happening there. Uh, and I think we're at, at this pivotal mo moment for mining as, as an industry. Um, we recently released a, a, a new set of data looking at specific ASIC models uh, and understanding the breakdown. Yes, I love this data set. Let's talk about yeah. that real quick. So this Let's is this stems out of uh, Kareem Helmi's nonce analysis, like obsession, I'm going to call it. Uh, it's an obsession. Right? Yeah. It is. He's it the is. only one on earth that is obsessed. Well, but yeah. not anymore because so um, and and so the, uh, maybe you can explain what is the nonce analysis concept, by the way. How are you? Ta basically, you're looking at um, hash rate and actually you're looking at blocks that are mined. And but based on how some quirks in the data, you can actually figure out and fingerprint which machine model mined it? Yeah, which machine How does mined that work? What is the data? What is block? the nonce? Like, explain yeah. this part to me. So nonce uh, is uh, short for uh, number used once. Uh, and the nonce is basically what Bitcoin miners are trying to get uh, when they're mining Bitcoins. So the ASICs, the, the, the machines that are highly specialized, uh, used in the context of mining, they're trying to find a nonce that will meet uh, some pattern that um, is required by the system so that you can actually include a block. Which is the, the difficulty adjustment, basically. Like they have to find, and I yeah. think the way Bitcoin works to make it harder is actually just adds adds and removes leading zeros from the output that's required, whatever, to make it like an infinitesimally large or small number, basically. Exactly. But it's yeah. a very clever system. Yeah. Uh, if, you, if you need to find more zeros that in, in the beginning of that hash, then you have to have more uh, compute power. And that's a way that Bitcoin adjusts for, you know, more miners coming in, miners leaving. Right. And uh, the nonce is that special number. Uh, one analogy that I like to use uh, is, you know, we think about m mining because mining as an industry, you know, as a, a very uh, human, you know, thousand year old activity, right. um, it, uh, it replicates from an economic perspective, like what Bitcoin miners are doing, right? You're trying to allocate resources into this process. And if you're lucky and you have the right equipment, you're finding new Bitcoins and you're rewarded for it just like when you're mining for silver or gold. Um, but mining, when it, when it comes to the actual process of what's happening under the hood for these miners, it's not the best analogy. Um, I found that locksmithing is it's maybe a little bit better. 
So what miners are trying to find is basically a key to a lock that is locked, and you're, they're competing to find the key that will unlock this lock. And that key is the nonce. Mm -hmm. Because once a miner has allocated enough resources to unlock that lock, produce a key that uh, unlocks that lock and enables them to you know, add a new block and lock it again uh, hmm. to the blockchain, that key is the proof of work. They've actually went through the effort right. of producing that key and they can share that with uh, anyone that wants to verify it. And it's very easy to just try and unlock this lock. And if you have the key, the right. lock will unlock. Right. So the nonce is really that key and it's unique for every single block. And you can think about you know, the ASICs as these you know, metal grinders that these miners are using to, to find these. But they, they end up having, even though certainly to the human eye, these hashes, these keys end up looking pretty randomized or whatever. Yeah. Actually, what I think Kareem first discovered on like the S9s or whatever he first looked at them was that there's there's actually a pattern. Different machines tend to like find not certain types of nonces or something, right? And that yeah. with like some kind of crazy big machine learning anal analysis, you can actually figure out those patterns and for, for a long time, you guys have offered the data. Kareem worked at Coinmetrics. Right? This is what he yep. worked on when he yep. was there. He worked yep. for you, right? Yep. So, um, and you had that data for the S7 and the S9, the ant miners, I think, right? Yeah, and, and those were, uh, you know, this stems from a lot of work. You guys uh, called it, too, like, what, the ghost in the machine, too? Because no one actually really understands why they're different, why there is a pattern, right? There, there are a couple of theories as to, like, why is it that each key and each block is, is different? Um, and... It was difficult to identify these patterns to begin with because although we knew these patterns existed, it was hard to match a pattern with a specific machine. Right. And, you know, back in, I think it was 2021 mm -hmm. when we first released the first set of metrics around right. S7s and S9s. Right. We knew the pattern had existed. Uh, it was initially this collaboration between Kareem, myself, and Antoine Lecove at, at, at CM. Yep. And we knew that depending on the ways that you would encode the nonce, you would find some interesting patterns that matched release dates for the S7 and S9s. Oh, wow. So that's how you started to realize. Yeah. And just sourcing the nonces on-chain uh, yeah. and basically matching that with uh, When a they big first release. appear and that, when you knew then that a machine was released in the public. Exactly. And, and, okay, and well, we started seeing. Okay, well, could be from seeing, that. But yeah. Yeah. You know, it wasn't exactly when they released because... They do As we learned, pre-mining uh, or whatever, yeah, they, they, they test, test them. They test them they before test they them send them out. Live, um, yep. sometimes for a little bit longer than they should have. Right. But um, so we found S sevens and S nines, and then Kareem, uh, because it is an obsession, yeah. continued that work, and uh, he's found a really clever way that we had originally talked about, uh, you know, at CM of how can you really expand the set of nonces beyond the blocks that are, you know, being found on blockchain on average every 10 minutes. But how can you really expand like your training set so that you can have more models right. um, that might be a little bit. I see because there's, you know, 806,000 blocks, but that's not that big of a set. It's not. And by the way, like big, right, the yeah. first five years of the them are irrelevant. They're not even ASICs. They're, right? Yeah, they're yeah. computers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and some of them also have patterns. Uh, right. Satoshi has left a pattern right. uh, in, in, in some of the early blocks. Yep. But um, we found that, you know, Kareem actually implemented this and spent a ton of work on uh, and time on this. Um, there are ways that you can just rent these ASICs and just sample them 
uh, to just the ha- point that hash you have, a whole bunch and just see what comes out. You you expand the set of of, of nonces that are produced by that ASIC. I see. So you look directly at the models hashing, yeah. rather than just the public data that becomes just part of the blockchain. Happens on, and, and then you can connect the machines without just relying on things like release them. times. Right now, because machines might be released concurrently and right 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 this is a substantially better way of of understanding and so let's fast forward a little bit because i want to get to some of the really interesting takeaways for this so so doing this coinmetrics and and kareem were now able to fingerprint basically all machines um and so now which has a lot of interesting implications but this, this, this i think in some ways the most obvious one is well let's say you're in the basic manufacturing business we can kind of see a real time and historical market share of your, of all the models, we can know like how many of S nineteens there are, and how many S nines there still are, and how many how many what's minor whatever M twenty S's there are, right? Like that's really interesting market data that does not exist in like tr- other industries, right? There's no way you can just like real time see like every single person's GPU that's playing Call of Duty. Like, exactly, it's really interesting, especially for hardware. Right, right. For right. hardware, you don't really have this common uh, network that you can source data from and understand the predominance of specific uh, machines. So that, I think that was fascinating in terms of understanding not only the the different the differences in composition in the network and how kind of diverse it's getting from a model perspective. Yeah, um, understanding, for example what it takes for a model to take off. Uh, and at times, you know, the XP, for example, took took a little bit longer to become predominant. Um, and really just track, add a little bit more context uh, to, you know, what's happening uh, in mining right now. You had a lot of uh, pools uh, and, and constituents, individual mining uh, operations, change their ASICs, restructure uh, in the bear market. Mm-hmm. And you can see that happening and changing the composition of these machines. Yeah, as have well. you found something where it's like, you know, say some big miner like closed down some big site or got acquired by somebody or whatever, and you actually see like a probably while the ASICs are being put on a truck, there's like a decline in one specific. Have you noticed things like that? Yeah, and, and you can see that in the different aggregation windows. So right. we have, uh, if you go to labs.coinmetrics.io, you, ha- you can see the, the breakdown of the machines. But we have um, different aggregation windows that we're testing with. And if you shorten the aggregation window, you can see the model becomes more sensitive. So you can see, for example, when there's a high likelihood that you know the the biggest user of you know the XP has unplugged, uh, and it's probably because they're moving operations somewhere. Or so different aggregation windows enable you to, to see this, um, and we kind of capture this this not only the the migration from China back in 2021 where. Uh, you had some some models kind of drop in usage and then pop back up, mm-hmm. but even with this latest kind of restructure uh, in in mining, you can see uh, a similar effect happening. So one of the other um, really interesting uh, analyses and conclusions that has you guys drew from this data, which is really fascinating, is a much more empirically em- empirical uh, assessment of Bitcoin's total en- electricity usage, yeah. energy usage. Yeah. Um, right, because you have Cambridge, um, the Center for Alternative Finance at Cambridge University, um, and theirs is what based on polling. They like literally ask some pools how much what they're how much they're using or whatever, or ha- what their hash rates are and where they are, and then they use the some like it's not real. They don't actually have electricity information. They know this. They admit this. They're, it's, they're it's, very transparent. And it's a very about good. This, but, it's a very yeah. good data source. 
but it's it's extrapolated. It's based on a bunch of assumptions, et cetera, right? It's the extrapolation. That's um, and then you obviously have like Digiconomist, who I don't know what his methodology is. Um, it but hasn't I don't been like the same. It, it hasn't been the same. He's changed it a bunch of times. He did yep. say that um, it would use all of the world's energy by 2020. Yep. Um, that obviously did not happen. But now you have a way, because you know every the proportion of every model on the yeah. network at any given time historically, yeah. well, we can also go look at the specs of the model. We know how much electricity it uses, right? So now you can actually sum a much more accurate measure of how much electricity Bitcoin is using, um, which I really, really like that they have. Now, we don't have to listen to these people making stuff up in, in the Netherlands or like Cambridge doing their best, but like it's just sort of like a poll. It's not actually a data-driven exercise. Now we have some hard data. And that's, as you know, of course, that's one of the biggest, like, not just criticisms, but like issues around Bitcoin and both in the, in the crypto world, but in the scientific community, in the climate community, in the mainstream, right? Everywhere, yeah. And now we that, actually have something real. Although like the one of the areas that I was most interested in was the breakdown of machines. I think the, the biggest impact of this data set is on the electricity consumption fronts yeah. because, you know, cam like we had a varying degree of, you know, intellectual honesty uh, in, in previous assumptions. I think Cambridge was very uh, honest about the shortcomings of their model. I agree. The economist was not. Uh, was not. And, and then uh, you have the Bitcoin Mining Council, which I think is honest, but is also a limited data set. Limited data right? set. Now you can see, because now you have this composition of, of, of ASICs in a network, from a, a much more precise uh, perspective, what is actually the consumption. And what these other models really didn't take into account is the insane increase in efficiency that new machines have introduced. Mm -hmm. So if you're making blanket statements about uh, the, the efficiency, rate. exactly, yeah. uh, you know, how many hashes can you uh, produce with the same unit of, of, of electricity, you're massively uh, uh, really not taking into account the increase in efficiency that new models uh, have right. introduced. And it, it, it has no signs of, of actually slowing down, uh, which is fascinating to me because... Yeah, people were thinking, I remember hearing five years ago, smart people had a thesis that, not all smart people, but some, some people who, I, who were smart and are still smart, thought that mining hardware would become commoditized quite shortly. That like actually there would essentially reach peak efficiency and then it, you know, then the game would be played solely on opex and 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 you know build outs and, and other ways to gain efficiency, even software, right? Even like, um, but that's not the case. They keep getting faster and faster, faster and faster. Uh, it, it's it's been really even my expectations of you know marginal increases in efficiency was you know underestimating uh, the speed through which uh you know these these new miners and efficiency you know the the, the underlying electricity consumption uh that's taking to produce uh you know hashes so uh, i think that was one of the biggest takeaways and the ultimate impact of increases in efficiency obviously is less electricity right so at times you know we're we're, we're half uh if you look at the actual machines on the network it's half the, con the consumption uh then you know what Cambridge and certainly other, uh, you know, less honest sources like Digi Economist yeah. had estimated, uh, and I, we think that this is really important because there's a lot getting discussed right now around mining policy, right, 
and using just bad data. Right. Uh, so you we know, just the, want the correct data. You want to, you want to speak to, and and if you accept this increase in efficiency, uh, and if you understand that this increase in efficiency continues to happen, it doesn't necessarily mean that as Bitcoin grows and its security expands, that uh, your consumption will increase. Uh, accordingly you right. know, consumption uh, can start tapering while efficiency and hash rate are still going up and before i think there was this mental model that when people were trying to reason about bitcoin's electricity consumption that you know all these kind of move in tandem which is not some kind of linear case. relationship yeah it's really interesting data definitely check that out at labs.coinmetrics.io um let's let's talk about a couple other things here i i really did love that data by the way yeah, i was great i was so fun. proud of kareem for yeah. this was Likewise. you're watching kareem like I'm, i can't believe you pulled this off after years yeah. of shilling this concept He's yep like, yep um he's done it yeah it's very cool um and so but you also look at other stuff, other stuff um too. what else i mean we're in a there's a lot there's more data crypto data vendors and projects and block explorers and free websites than there has ever been before um what do you think of, of the state of crypto data are we, is crypto data ready for like the institutions like are they coming are we like what what level of of quality and depth and analysis are we getting out of the crypto data world these days yeah it's it's been interesting because there was a lot of specialization that that's happened in in crypto data as as well, uh, and I think it's a factor that you know stems from the fact that you have a lot of um, different areas of interest in the industry. You had like even data providers that were focusing on, on NFT markets, right? Only NFT data. Only NFT only. data. Yeah. Um, you know now we have new entrants that are looking at real world assets right. uh, and specializing, and I think it, it stems from the fact that you have a ton of data. The transparency of these blockchains, the byproduct, that transparency is really a ton of different areas that you can start monitoring. But because our, our clients are mostly institutions, we have to be a little bit more careful, you know, allocating resources to things like NFTs, for example, because there just is, isn't uh, a lot of demand for that type of data from that institutional perspective. Yep. But um, uh, I think the state of crypto data today is a bit confusing because we really don't know what is going to happen, uh, you know, market-wise, if these layer twos that can be very difficult for data providers to integrate will stick around, right? If um, projects that are even more challenging to support, like Solana, um, mm -hmm. you know, will have like long-term feasibility. You know, Solana, for example, it produces uh, more data in one day that Bitcoin produces in an entire year, although that might change with ordinals getting yeah. more predominant uh, in, in Bitcoin. Yeah. So the decision of where to focus, uh, I think, has never been like this, this challenging uh, mm -hmm. in the field of crypto data. But uh, a lot of data providers are still you know, around focusing on different areas. We tend to have you know, a more conservative, uh, like quality-oriented approach to our data strategy uh, because of the expectations of our clients. So that prevents us from, you know, going all in into, you know, new layer twos. The time needs to elapse and, and the need to actually uh, get real usership and interest for us to actually go right. and, and, and monitor them. Um, but I would say that there are some areas that are not controversial at all and that we're, we're focusing on. Uh, there's a lot in stable coins today that folks are really interested, interested in. And it's one of those rare intersections between what institutions are interested in and what the crypto native folks are interested in. Right. Stable coins. 
Um, so we're focusing a lot on not only expanding stablecoin coverage with new projects, but uh, also thinking about uh, additional data points that will be a requirement for stablecoins. Like there are projects that are trying to uh, basically uh, tokenize treasuries, right? And that entails yield. Right. And, How do you track a yield metric or whatever? Right. Yeah. It's almost like a new. It's a, it's almost like a new financial product in a lot of ways because it's almost like you're tokenizing your deposit at, at a bank. Uh, in your checking accounts, and your that unit is rebasing as you're getting more interest. Right. So, uh, it, it entails like from a data perspective, a lot of challenges. Uh, but those are the areas that I think are less controversial that we need to focus. Totally. on. Totally, I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, the stablecoin stablecoins are objectively widely used, right? Um, yeah. And um, and they're interesting. They have some features that are very that are better. They're not volatile typically. Well. You know, they can wood. <laughs> yeah, um, the good ones that function properly uh, yeah. typically don't have alt price volatility, which is great. So it's like uh, it's it's money with wings. It's like dollars that you can send globally, right? I mean, have you, I don't know if people have ever tried to send dollars to like another country. It's very difficult. It's painful. It's like painful. they're not on Venmo. They're not on Cash App. I don't know why. Apparently, all those things are just national borders, basically. Right. Well, it's. I do know why it's jurisdictional, right? It's there's there's a huge issue. But jurisdictions. public blockchains are global. Yeah. Um, of course, they're typically collateralized. I would be interested to see as you guys build out too. Like, there's a wide variety of how they're collateralized. Like, if Treasury's off chain, one thing, but then you got, yeah. you got like Maker, which is all on chain, and then you got Frax, which is what like half collateralized, right? They're they're quite different. So yeah, it, it, they're they're testing different models for for stablecoins now, and I think the toughest part of you know understanding stablecoins and 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 even around their coverage is that use case. Is it actually getting used for payments? Because if so, the metrics that you would use to contextualize stablecoins is different, right? Yep. Um, what is the actual underlying use case for a stablecoin? Uh, in DeFi, it does get used quite frequently as a stable store of value yep. because you might not want to rely on you know your local banking system to actually get fiat that's less volatile then yep on and off ramps in and out of crypto could be difficult yeah very difficult but uh some preliminary you know data and we've, we've written about stable coins uh quite a lot but a big one is as a collateral type right right because it's a stable form of collateral and you can get leverage uh in a you know risk minimized way and, that, and that's one of the ironies of of, of crypto at this like stage, the old right? Bit, Bitmex, right? Bitmex didn't, you could only post Bitcoin as collateral for most of its existence back right. in the day, yeah. which was tricky for people to manage who traded there. I never traded there or anything, but like, yeah. because you're, you get your actual position that you're collateralizing, which could be volatile, which yeah. is usually leverage Bitcoin or yeah. something like that, yeah. or some altcoin you were trading. Um, it's moving. You're managing that risk, but also the, the structural value of your underlying collateral it's changing is volatile. And by the way, in crypto a lot of times that was highly correlated moves too so like exactly. you could lose money on your position at the same time as your collateral value is dropping right and have yeah. the scramble so i think I, I don't know but at most almost all of those exchanges have changed to stablecoin collateralization exactly for that yeah. reason but you can do a lot in you know in DeFi, frankly with um with stable coins because as a, a stable uh you know unit of account you have you know, fixed uh, LTVs. You yep. don't have to think about your LTV anymore to the right. point where you get. And, uh, you know, we'll see if, if 
this happens with Bitcoin too. Like it, it's uncomfortable, but you know, Bitcoin is the third largest collateral type in DeFi. Uh, if you think about all Which the is basically the like what variants, rap Bitcoin and like t, t other versions of that. TBDC. Mostly, yeah, yeah. Rap, rap Bitcoin. Um, yeah, but uh, it is it, it does function uh, as you know one of these a few areas in the in the industry. You know, beyond uh, you know trust minimize like currencies and, and and stores of value like Bitcoin. Uh, one of the few applications that have actually uh, gotten product market fit at this point is what um, on ch on chain leverage and lending. You mean like collateralized lending, basically? Collateralized lending, yeah. yeah. Especially with stable coins, because then uh, your your liquidations are, are fixed right. and right. and you can get leverage in a much more uh, in a much safer way. And and that's kind of the, this irony of of DeFi as it as it exists today, yeah. right? Its main value proposition is risk management uh, because you can. You don't need to rely on like a, a 400 page contract to an interpretation of that contract to move uh, collateral yeah, around. You can it's, be pretty sure exactly how it's going to play out under different scenarios, right? Exactly. Yeah. And they have no leeway if you no. need it, but you, you'll, you'll know for certain that you don't have that leeway. So you can pre prepare for it, right? Or whatever. That's exactly right. And think about it from a cost perspective, too. You know, if you were to, you know, executing these these contracts in the real world world and, and rely on you know court systems is incredibly costly and you know tough to 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 navigate a lot right. of times depending on your jurisdiction uh you know in crypto that's 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 a lot simpler uh and i'm excited i'm 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 an optimist uh, especially with regards to bitcoin we'll see what uh, starts coming to Bitcoin on that on that front. Well, let's well. talk about that a little bit too, um, because you, you mentioned ordinals before, also, yeah. and and there's I think it's fair to say there's a bit of a culture clash happening in Bitcoin. I still think the the monetary maximalists, the the digital gold um, crowd, is the dominant culture in Bitcoin. But yeah. probably like never before, or at least not for many years, there is a resurgence of Bitcoin as a platform for building other things. Right. Um, you've got ordinals, which you know is, I think, at its base layer, most people think of as NFTs, but actually, the vast majority of ordinals were weird token things, BRC twenties, right? BRCs. Then you also have um, drive chains. Big debate about drive chains. I don't yeah. know if you have a take on drive chains. Um, I do. Okay, yeah. I'll give it to you one second, and then just to, to round this out here, there's also a lot of people trying to build rollups on Bitcoin. So, yeah. Um, let's rather than attack that entire question, what is your take on drive chains? By the way, drive chains. Um, you know, I've been following. Paul's work for a really, really long time. I mean, time. he published these um, bips, what, in like 2017? Yeah, it was, yeah, 20. A while ago. Or maybe 26. I mean, these are five or six year old proposals. They, they, they're, they're old, and I think it's, um, it's been discussed, uh, quite frequently, you know, even back then in terms of, of their feasibility. I think now that there is kind of this, this cultural bifurcation in Bitcoin of, you know, where is the protocol going from from now? I think it's it's gaining more more traction. Uh, and, you know, a lot of context is, is required here, right? We had this whole conversation around uh, uh, CTV uh, and its activation. Uh, and that was very traumatizing even for like Jeremy right. to, to, to go through. Yeah. Uh, and in kind of the tail end of that, you have, uh, you know, this conversation around drive chains. I think one lesson that kind of blew my mind around ordinals is around unintended uh, consequences, right? Um, this, what I consider this one of the smartest people in the world uh, worked a ton on tap roots uh, and really didn't see how 
loosening what you can actually encode in the witness, the signature part of, of a transaction, uh, what that would be actually be used in the wild. So, and that, you know, although when Ardenals uh, launched, people thought that it was the end, right? You could not run a node anymore. And yeah, which didn't end up being true, but which yes. Which is not the case whatsoever. You know, we've, we've you, modeled you mean, that out. And your point is that, um, when Taproot was activated in the chains, the, yes, they relaxed the limits on what, how much data, they removed the limits, I believe, on how much data yeah. you could put in the witness section of the transaction. And then along with SegWit, which also makes any data you put there less expensive, um, that they, you mean that they didn't know, realize that this would happen, right? Yeah, or that it would, it would get used for, for I think this order no the, the community, the Bitcoin broadly community was caught completely off guard completely by this. Guard. Casey Rotemore like dropped this bomb. Nobody knew yeah. what was coming. It was like a, a it, bit I think of it's a actually secret, quite bearish but, yeah. for future BIPs in general. Like the, the fact that like there weren't in, like, again, not every person can be expected to, you know, have the technological capability to review these types of proposals but so you rely on like the the smart developers to to talk about it and you can participate and, and certainly follow the conversation and debate and it didn't come up once it did not it <laughs> so did not like, and how, i think frankly that... if you had told bitcoiners upgrade to taproot and we'll get like never-ending nfts on bitcoin they would have yeah. broadly opposed it like absolutely and i think it was done very quiet it was a little bit of a secret um not, I shouldn't say, I shouldn't use the word secrets, but it was only for the, you know, astute observers that were looking at this loosening of the rules that questioned this design decision. Like, why would you even do it? Uh, and based on some conversations that I've had, the reason was they were future-proofing for new proof sizes. Like, right. they, they thought, oh, maybe there is a way that you can, you know, put a, a zero-knowledge proof on Bitcoin. Uh, maybe there are, you I'm know, novel... Like, like Musig and these other weird new tap script things. Signature like, aggregation. Right. There's all of You're these gonna different... You're going to need more space in there for weird crypto for, yeah. things, for cryptography things. That were Not completely valid. <laughs> <laughs> Long and behold, what was that used for? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's NFTs, right? So I think there are unintended and unpredictable consequences that uh, shouldn't be dismissed, I think, both with CTV and, and with drive chains. I am, uh, I am more pro CTV, and, and, and there was even um, a blog post, uh, I think, ha has been retracted, but uh, on how one could implement uh, drive chains using CTV. Um, but I think... In my view, because of these unintended consequences, because the ultimate end result of drive chains would just be more tokens and more tokens, although like I'm not saying that there's no value in tokenization, I'm not making that, you know, more, you know, maxi, sure. you know, article, uh, uh, comment. I think there is a lot of interesting use cases, as we just discussed, on tokenization. It would take a long time for Bitcoin to replicate uh, a lot of the, the, these like more DeFi tokenization use cases um, to the point where that might not be the best use of our time and resources, given that there are potential for unintended circumstances. Yeah, I, I hear you. I think that that's a very fair take and way to think about it. Drive chains are um, merged mind side chains essentially minor custodied yeah and that have what 301 has a peg in and out mechanism built right. into so um that 
it can mess with mining economics. There could be unintended question. I mean, I think this was Casey. Casey made this point really well, actually, was that I thought in a way that I finally really understood the risk, this part of the risk, which was that um, it creates just other externalities and miners would start, uh, by the way, you get really good at it. You, it's like MEV. It's it, it's like MEV in that you centralize, and we're seeing this on Ethereum now, which is the verticalization of block building and MEV. Like all the best block builders are doing the MEV themselves, right? right. It's, it's not the flashbots thing isn't working exactly as intended. In it is making it so that anyone can do MEV, but who's the best at it? Who can hire all the devs to come up with new algos and find the strategies, right? And the same kind of thing w could happen here and. Again, I'm not even sure if it's that bad, but I, I'm unsure. It's a, there's a pretty big unintended outcome possibly that could be dramatic. Dramatic. I, I think this. I don't know would, if it's bad. It's just it's something though. I think you hit the, the nail on the head. I think this would really bring in some novel. MEV strategies to Bitcoin that I don't think we're ready for just yet. Yeah, Eric Wall made this point really well too. At I think Bitcoin 2023 is one of my favorites for him and Udi's. Uh, um, Taproot Wizards thing where they had Shinobi and Matt Corallo there too is like uh -huh. the a anti, where they, although they were all pretty reasonable, I thought, but it was yep. pretty funny. But he said that Bitcoin developers have no effing idea, he said, how to do anything related to MEV. Ethereum communities spent the last five years trying to mitigate it and remove it from the protocol. We don't know anything about it. He's like, we're completely unprepared for if that were to happen, like what to do. Bitcoin, yeah. well, they'd have to go and learn from the Ethereum community. Yeah, it's, and, you know, it's interesting. Bitcoiners are loath to do that. Yeah, because, <laughs> you know, you can think about the block wars as a, a war around MEV, right? I think I, I wouldn't say that, you know, Bitcoin developers don't really understand MEV. I think the definition of MEV uh, is obviously very different for Bitcoin uh, than it is for Ethereum. Like one simple way of thinking about it is, you know, in Ethereum, the transactions in the block are executed sequentially. The order matters. The order matters absurdly, right? It's yeah. everything. Yeah. Uh, whereas in Bitcoin, everything is atomic. Uh, either all of them execute at once or none of them execute right. at all. Right. Um, so th there are different ways that miners can extract value uh, if, if they're trying to do MEV in Bitcoin. MEV was actually born in Bitcoin. Um, right, absolutely. The first, um, the first MEV project was via BTC's transaction accelerator. Uh, I think they launched back in 2014. And uh, if you broadcast a transaction back then and you got stuck and you didn't do RBF, the recipient couldn't do child pays for parent, like two mechanisms that you can expedite uh, you know, the, the settlement of a transaction, you could go on their website. I think you can still do that. I think you could like pay with a credit card. You pay with a credit You'd card. You literally give the mining to, pool money and they just include it. Yeah, that, <laughs> so that is a way of extracting value with, it is. you know, and, and, uh, and if you look at their block templates, over time, they always have less transaction fees than others because they are also accepting transactions, uh, so-called out of band. Yeah. So I think MEV has existed in Bitcoin. If you think about the block size wars, uh, miners were pro increasing the block size because they saw that as an opportunity to extract more value. Um, and in a lot of ways, User-activated softworks are the ultimate weapon against MEV, and it is a very much, you know, Bitcoin culture, you know, aspect. Uh, so I think Bitcoin developers, I think they're they're 
familiar with like this kind of division of powers mm -hmm. is just they don't understand from a product and use case perspective how these things materialize. I think that maybe that that's what Eric meant because they're not really tuned into the Ethereum ecosystem where these things tend to appear first, right? Things like DeFi. Yeah, things I think like he just means NFTs. they're behind. Base. It's not that they can't understand it. It's that they yeah. they they haven't been following it. Yeah. And they've learned a lot of lessons in Ethereum for the different ways they've tried to mitigate it and seen how it's played out. There's a lot to be learned there. A ton. And, and it's interesting, too, because in a lot of ways, it starts... There was this meme back in the day that, you know, Litecoin was Bitcoin's testnet. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no. Silver to Bitcoin's right now, gold, testnet, BTC, yeah. <laughs> Ethereum is, you know, Bitcoin's testnet. Well, yeah, um, especially if we start to see roll-ups and stuff emerge on Bitcoin, then it really will be like, we we waited until you guys finally came up with the ZK roll-up, and now we're going to implement it. Exactly, yeah. 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 And, and by the way, I think if you think about long-term... There are two term, projects building ZK roll-ups uh, using sovereign roll-up style. Um, yeah. Kazar Labs and Chainway both are, are planning to release a Bitcoin ZK rollup. Yeah, I'm I'm following those, those projects. Yeah. It, it's all about you know, I think how do you connect them to the chain? That's a little bit more controversial, right? And are they actually, yeah. uh, you know, could the actual users uh, have some assurances of, you know, Bitcoin security being applicable to that? And that that's a little that's bit tough. Trickier. Yeah, especially with no change. I mean, this is why. Yeah. I think 301, the drive chains is two BIPs. The second one is a trustless peg in, peg out mechanism. Yeah, I, I don't actually like right, that yeah. mechanism yeah. he's designed much personally either, but it's, again, he's he, he sees that need as well. Exactly, yeah. I, and, and I think, you know, directionally, I think we should embrace these ideas. Uh, we can disagree about implementations, but I think just to dismiss them and say, oh, I don't want to see any you know, shitcoins on, on, on Bitcoin. I think it's really uh, undermining a lot of the value proposition that we've seen emerge in things like Ethereum as it relates to you know, lending, as it relates to actually not trusting a third party to custody your Bitcoins, which, you know, wrapped Bitcoin, the third largest, you know, collateral type in Ethereum, uh, is really just a big third, third party uh, mm -hmm. that's that's holding it uh, and doing more uh, without really losing custody, which is, I think, a very cyberpunk kind of thing. to Yeah, to, to, it, it is. To I, I really to. agree. I, I, I want, I love Bitcoin and I want to use my Bitcoin more. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't mean I want to buy cat JPEGs necessarily, but who knows? I, I, I would like to I want Bitcoin to be more, more full-featured. Another thing people point out a lot is we want things like privacy, better privacy. Yeah. In the world, by the way. I don't even mean not, on not Bitcoin. Like this privacy is a, is a multi-generational battle that has been being fought and will continue to be, be, to be fought. Um, I asked, actually had an FBI agent on this show, Chris Tarbell, and a former FBI agent, and he, um, I asked him this question about the the battle between like Apple and the FBI during the San Bernardino shooter thing, and then the, mm. the clipper chip in the '90s, and like how it's the yeah. same battle, just constantly being it's, fought. It's and I was like, are we concept, destined? Yeah. I asked him if we were destined to fight this battle against government forever, and he said, I hope so. He's like, because I hope they don't win. He's like, we we deserve to have this. Anyway, point being is it doesn't even have to be altcoins that get built on Bitcoin. It could be a privacy L2. It could be a exactly. – um, there's there's uses that we should be able to to play around with, um, I would like, personally. Yeah, I, I would too. And if you think about this concept of uh, you know, Ethereum as Bitcoin's testnet, um, <laughs> you know, in Ethereum, I think it was during the Byzantium upgrade of 2018, they introduced an opcode that verifies uh, zero-knowledge proofs, right? Uh, it's gotten tested in the wild multiple times. We're now seeing 
uh, ZK rollups being launched on Ethereum, testing these these different functionalities. Um, you know, there are a few projects that are looking at the privacy end because ZK rollups you can use for both privacy reasons and efficiency reasons. You can right. batch validation right. of transactions, uh, and that tends to be you know a lot more of like an Ethereum use case because scalability is kind of critical there. Yep. yep. But privacy, you're absolutely right. Um, they can. Be. I think if we think long term and and you know beyond just like very use case driven um you know proposals like drive chains um and think about zk rollups that could be used for privacy scalability uh composability you know functionality all of these different things jammed into one i think it's it's a lot more interesting because the only thing that the, this new hypothetical opcode would be doing is just validate mm -hmm. uh, uh, something from right. the outside on-chain, which is, I think, a lot more scalable and it, it does limit what actually happens. You don't have to actually, you know, change any sort of scripting within Bitcoin itself. It's just really a validation mechanism. Yep, yep. It's going to be exciting. Um, before we wrap, one last question. Uh, you've been in crypto quite a long time, as, as have I. Where are we in this long bear cycle bear market how are, how are, how are you thinking about really as a long time bitcoiner crypto uh researcher analyst like where, where, how are you staying not cynical and and ex i mean there's a lot of interesting stuff happening and maybe that's the answer but where where, where do where does it feel like to you this is probably the most painful um i remember the aftermath of silk road shutting down where to be involved in Bitcoin was to be a criminal, like in the public eye. Um, mm -hmm. You know, still there was a strong cohort of, of people that believed in peer-to-peer -peer markets and in in, in freedom. Uh, you know, 2017 was a wild year. Like you had the proliferation of ICOs. Went and really from like $600 Bitcoin to $20,000 Bitcoin that year. Exactly, and then you had the aftermath of all these projects collapsing lots of uh, scam icos and stuff even ones that weren't scams also many of them failed right i mean a huge like it was like a huge burning hot and then fading right like, exactly and then you always kind of default back to you know why the hell does this technology exist and excite you um and i think this bear market has been particularly painful because now, I think this the, the previous bull was when crypto went mainstream, really. Uh, and it went mainstream maybe for very bad, you know, reasons. Uh, at least, like, the, the perpetrators uh, of the collapses but and he, massive he, yeah, failures. And even, like, saw. the wide ad adoption at the time, too, it, was, it wasn't it was for necessarily the core things that we know case, make it no. core value, right? It was, yeah. it was um, JPEGs. It was um, just pure naked speculation, yeah. like casino type game in the scheme of things, right? Unfortunately, we didn't really explain to the millions of people that came in to Jimmy Fallon on TV holding up his NFT. He couldn't, he he had an NFT, couldn't tell you a single thing about why decentralization matters. That's what really was sad about it to me in retrospect was it was a mania, but we didn't, and of course we've got more, we did bring in more true believers. That cohort is growing. It, Never Absolutely, stops growing. Yeah. The, the user base, yeah, by any metric, has drastically increased. I think the the challenge is on the use case front, right? Uh, what is it that we're solving at yeah. this point? Uh, and I think we're at the max pain, you know, stage. Uh, it is 
I think going to be very um, painful, even like going into the halving if prices don't really recuperate. Yeah, and pain, painful for uh, for miners potentially as well. For miners, I think for a lot of these newer projects that may be raised and are kind of extending their, their runways, like layer one, <laughs> layer twos, they're coming through. So I think yeah. uh, there's still some pain ahead, but I think um, there's still... I always go back to this cohort of users that have been around for a while that understand this technology from a really deep perspective and that understand how it's going to be important moving into the future uh, as you know a fundamental you know sovereign uh, yep. technologies so uh, fascinating great discussion Lucas Nutzi from Coinmetrics my friend thank you so much for coming to New York and coming on Galaxy Brains thank you Alex always a pleasure that's it for this week's episode of Galaxy Brains thank you to our guests Lucas Nutzi from Coinmetrics and Bimnet Abibi from Galaxy Trading as always lots happening in crypto data analytics a whole new data set and type of data set to analyze and impact markets we'll be watching it closely for now have a great weekend and we will see you next week Thanks for listening to Galaxy Brains, the weekly podcast from Galaxy Research. If you enjoy the show, please like, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. To follow Galaxy Research, sign up for our weekly newsletter at gdr.email, read our content at galaxy.com research, and follow us on Twitter at glxyresearch. See you next week.